Man, we gotta start using Apple Cash. Okay, why? It's so easy and convenient. Apple Cash lives in messages. All right. So I can pay you in the convos we're already having. Not forget a payment or have money sitting somewhere just collecting dust. Oh, that is nice. And then you can use that cash right away and buy stuff like at a store with Apple Pay. I don't have to do all that bank transfer stuff. Nope. It's just right there. Easy, convenient, and secure. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? See how easy that was? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by Kim Crawford Wines. Kim Crawford invites you to savor amazing with a chilled glass of New Zealand's finest. Named in the Wine Spectator Top 100 list four times. Every sip of Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc is filled with tropical fruit flavors like passion fruit and citrus to help you experience golden hour how you see fit. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more and find Kim Crawford Wine near you. Savor amazing. For those 21 and over, please savor responsibly. Constellation Imports, Rutherford, California. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I've Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Uh, okay, so it's been quite a stressful time for a lot of us, especially here in Atlanta. And I will say there's a lot to be processed here. And Annie and I have been kind of going back and forth about talking about some of the issues that have happened around the country, but specifically to Atlanta. And I want to dedicate the Monday Mini trying to be more vulnerable of myself. And not that I'm not, I think I'm pretty open (laughs) (laughs) in general about my opinions of things, but being open about what's been occurring. And I've been debating, honestly, whether or not to address some of my own opinions or even the thought process of what's been happening in Atlanta. And because of my Asian descent and identity, and I've been struggling I know, I think many of your listeners know, it's been something that I've been struggling with a lot in trying to find my identity. And it's a very touchy and complicated subject, especially growing up in a very white, very conservative and religious community, whether it's my family, whether it's my upbringing, whether it was my like school experiences even, and whether it is, is today. I, I still can't say that I truly have a close Asian friend. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these things are, are really complicated for me to work through. But we are going to talk about the shooting here in Atlanta that occurred on March 16th, in which a young white man drove directly to three different Asian spas and um, massage parlors and shot eight people, seven women, and of those seven women, six Asian women. And uh, just to put this caveat here, he bought a gun that day legally yeah, and then used that gun to 
murder eight people. And there's been a lot of articles and conversations, and I think such needed conversation. And in Atlanta, I believe the percentage of Asian citizens make up about 7 to 10%, surprisingly. And they are in very isolated locations. So you'll see a community towards northern Georgia area. Gwinnett areas, you'll see a pretty big population. Uh, in Atlanta, you'll see a big, pretty big population. Like we call Beaufort Highway one of the best places to go get any type of authentic Asian food. And it's if you're in Atlanta and need good <laughs> recommendations, that's where to go. Uh, mm-hmm. I will put that in there. I love, I love that Beaufort Highway has such a great setup. Yeah. But you know, it is a growing community and it's still a small community in comparison to. And when we talked about the voting. And people of color who have been real big catalysts to turning our state blue. Not only was it, yes, definitely black women and black community who pushed through, but it is a lot, a big chunk of Asian people and Asian community who also pushed through. Gwinnett flipped because of that. And Gwinnett, we talked about the white woman who was like, oh no, we have to change the laws. If not, we may never <laughs> win as Republicans. You're like, yeah, maybe you should shh. Yeah, about not that. a good look. <laughs> but uh, there was a lot that happened on March 16th, as you can tell. And I, for myself, as I first saw the initial report, and I do follow several amazing Asian journalists on Twitter, and that's where I kind of got the first update because I don't have live TV, that, that something was going down. And as I was reading through it, as I was watching it, first people were kind of scared, like, what is happening who is he targeting? Who is this? Is this more than one person? Is this an outright attack from a militia? Like, is this, what is happening? What is going down? Um, I remember I was making dinner and I had my partner. I was like, I need you to look this up. I need to know what's going on. He didn't realize when I was talking about it initially that it was in Atlanta. It kind of just kind of mm. went over his head. And then he was like, oh, I didn't know this was in Atlanta. I was like, yeah, it's happening here. I, I need to know what's going on. I mean, not that it matters where, but of course, being in Atlanta, it felt... Right. So personal. And um, he actually told me that while he was looking it up, one of the reports that he was reading, uh, one of the reporters had asked law enforcement officers whether people should be concerned about going out, what is ha- like, what this attack is about. And his response was, well, I wouldn't go to any nail salons right now. And it just kind of like hit me in the way of like, well, that's racist. Like, that's all I can think of. Like, what? What's happening? So, at the same time, it validated my sense of, this is aimed towards Asian people, and we know when it comes to the stereotype of who owns nail salons, who works Mm -hmm. at nail salons, who works at spas, who works at these, you know, places. And it was kind of, like, immediate of, like, okay, that seemed really dismissive. A. Yeah. B. The jokes, as I was reading, trying to keep up what was going on on social media about like happy endings, was all over the place. And I just remember feeling like, yep, this is the same old, same old. Of course they would go to there. And of course there were people in there that would defend and be like, hey, dude, that's not cool. That's not cool. And by the way, the majority of these people who were making the jokes were men. Uh, I'm Mm -hmm. not going to, you know, sugarcoat that at all. And it was. And it was very disappointing. At the same time, like, I don't think any of us really understood what was happening. And so this was the initial reactions to the fact that my dad, who is a white man, called me. And I do genuinely believe he did it to check in on me and to make sure I was okay. But his initial reaction and his initial question to me was, what's going on? I've been seeing a lot of reports about Asian people being targeted and people being mean to Asians and hurting Asians. What's happening? And as I've told many of people, 
before, and as I've told our audience before, that my parents are very conservative and are Trump supporters, and I think are still Trump supporters. My family, my brothers, my siblings are all very, very heavily Trump supporters, except for my niece. Ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> and when I'm trying to explain to him without knowing what was happening, without knowing exactly who was targeted, when I was explaining to him, well, this has been really, really dangerous for a lot of Asian people because of things like Kung flu and China virus. And I've told you before that I'm not comfortable. And this was his way of trying to ease everything for me by saying, well, you know, everybody just hates everybody, I guess. No one can get along. Well, I don't understand why we can't all just get along. Right. Again, thinking that he was assuring me that it's not just me. But at the same time, mm-hmm. he obviously knew enough to call me and to check in on me right. as well as to tell me not to go out because mm-hmm. he was concerned for me. It was very obvious, though, he didn't want to take that blame. He didn't want to hear that as part of the reason that, that there's a prejudice towards Asian communities. And it's not just because of Trump. Right. Like, he is the, like, one of the many symptoms on what's already been happening. But it definitely did not help and definitely pushed to a whole different level when we talk about these Asian hate crimes. Mm-hmm. And honestly, uh, Nicole Chung, who we had the pleasure of talking with and interviewing and reading her book, talks about it in her article in Times, which is titled, My White Adopted Parents Struggled to See Me as Korean. Would they have understood my anger at the rise in anti-Asian violence? And um, if you had actually heard that episode, she talks about her parents dying, having to grieve and going through this process. But also she talks about really trying to find her identity, some of the betrayal she had felt growing up, realizing some of the deceptions that happened, not necessarily with her parents, but with the, by the white community which has been something that we've talked about before. And I, I, I heard that, like, I, my parents cannot connect to the Black Lives Matter. They really cannot understand violence against the Black community. But because I am their daughter, who they love, and I absolutely know this, they were able to connect this. Mm-hmm. So we understand that. But they still cannot understand why. Because in their minds, I'm not truly Asian-Asian. I'm a model minority this is not really going to happen type of conversations that we had. And not surprisingly, the Cherokee County Sheriff's Captain, who has been rightly raked over the coals for his comment because it was very excusing and humanizing of the murderer. Yeah. And he was later found to have this anti-Asian stuff on his social media. And turns out he has a Vietnamese adopted brother. Mm-hmm. And what's too close to me is that my brothers have put sentiments like that as well. Mm-hmm. Not even talking to me, not even thinking about me. And they can't understand why I, it would hurt my heart. They don't understand when we went last year to, you went to Canada, I went to Florida, mm-hmm. everything was starting to come out about, you know, at that point, I think people were calling it the Wuhan virus. Right. And me refusing to wear a mask because I was afraid of people assuming I already had it and or that I was from Wuhan or that I, you know, something, right. any, any of those things, which doesn't even necessarily correlate to me having COVID. But in my mind, that was a fear that I absolutely refused to do that, which honestly, I'm like, why didn't I? Because who knows how many germs from everything else there is on the plate anyway. Yeah. But I think that's that's a whole other level of conversation of like 
I'm trying my best to disappear and be still, still stay invisible, which is something that I've struggled with as a kid. And she even wrote on her column, Nicole Chung did, uh, quote, the truth is it is entirely possible to love and care for one Asian American, the quote, your Asian American, and not to see other Asians as equal or fully human. And I think that's, this is a whole separate conversation about the adoptive world and what this looks like in this time where, I'm sorry, and, and I, I loved it when I read a tweet by an adoptive Asian person talking about her proximity to white people, like she tried her damnedest to be as white as possible, but that did not protect her from all the sexism and the misogyny in the world because she was still seen as Asian. And she is Asian, like, end of story. That's a whole other mm-hmm. conversation is the title Asian alone. It's like, is that appropriate because... And I'm going to talk a little bit about it in a minute about colorism in itself and the breakdown of the prejudice within the Asian communities. And we need to talk about that. Mm-hmm. But it, it was it was that initial, like all of that that was happening that day. And I'm going to tell you, I, I had a really, and you saw this, really difficult time processing the next day, the next week, the following week, even this week that you can hear it in my voice. I'm still struggling today with some of the things that we are talking about, the conversations, the debates that are happening, and how seen but unseen that I am. Is this like balance? And just because I, I think it's important, I do, I do want to talk about a little bit, at least uh, recognize who the victims of the shooting were, and which include Sun Chung Park, Hyun Jung Grant, or Hyun Jung Kim before she was married, Sun Cha Kim, Yang Yan Yu, Xiaojie Tan, Tao Feng, and Delaney Ashley Yun and Paul Andre Michaels, who were all victims of that day. And there are stories coming out of the different victims of who they were and why they were here. And there were so many heartwarming, heartbreaking, I don't I don't know which to say, stories of why, why they were even here. And I say this in an understanding. We just talked about a little of this during our feminist book club house on Mongo Street in trying to come to the U.S. to follow that hopeful dream of changing your life or becoming these things. And when you read how they were parents and they were mothers and all of these things, and I will say the day that I read all of these reports or the next day, I believe, I was tweeting and one of the first things that thought came through my head, just because I knew they were Asian women who were most likely refugees or perhaps newly citizenized here, and that worked at Asian parlors, that I was petrified of how the media, how the people would take their names, take their lives, and just use it against them, essentially, and make these people no longer the victim, but as if they deserved it. And I I was petrified of seeing that. And maybe it's because of my circle. I don't know. I haven't seen that as much, and I'm very grateful to that. I think there was a lot to be said in people giving to the different GoFundMes, and that was beautiful to see, just being able to uh, see that they were being supported. That was beautiful to see. I definitely got contact by many people. Annie, you were one of them, and I was very grateful for that, as well as um, Holly was one of them who, who immediately, and it was beautiful. And I just had people who were just like, hey, I just want to say I'm so sorry this world sucks. Like, I, I, <laughs> I just had that. And that was beautiful to see as well. And I felt supported. I felt seen in that. And it was such a weird thing because I know when the deaths of the people in the Black community who 
continues to happen, as we know, and continues to not get justice. Breonna Taylor still hasn't gotten justice, and we're still waiting to see what's happening, but they are completely dismissing it. And I think everyone is petrified that they're just going to just freaking ignore it, which is a travesty, which is unjust in every way. Like, in, in knowing that I would reach out to my friends in that community and not knowing what to do. So it was weird to be on this end right, to receive it because it's, it's one of those, it's like, well, it wasn't me. I didn't know these women. I didn't know these individuals. But yeah, it is real too personal, too close somehow. So, but at the same time, it's not fair me, for me to take on this as if it's my narrative if that makes sense. Of course, we're talking about the bigger picture, but there's still that guilt in me. And mm-hmm. why should I, why should people reach out to me? What's the point? You know what I mean? I, again, so there's a lot of that. And then of course, this kind of is a whole breakdown of the sexism and the misogyny and the racism that is completely implicit into this whole narrative. And if you ignore one, you're ignoring the whole situation, like in general. As yeah. a reminder, anybody who wants to say this one thing doesn't have to do with it, you are willfully dishonoring the death of these people because that is a false narrative. Because what we look at when we see what is happening, Asian women, Asian businesses that mainly employ women were killed, were targeted. And I know it's been said many a times, especially the location in Atlanta, that whole strip has different sex working businesses. Mm-hmm. So for him to go specifically to Asian communities, that was on purpose. So just because, once again, like many people have said, he has not said it was race-motivated, doesn't mean If there is a group of people, and as in fact, you are reaching out to me as an Asian woman, or you think of me, or any of those, and I say this for my family, then race has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. End of story. Ethnicity has something to do with it. So that should just go ahead and fall by the wayside because it's full of, oh, it's just insulting. I'm not <laughs> stupid. Let's just put it at that. And then specific targets because he said he had a sexual addiction. Mm-hmm. First of all, guilt of having sex versus having an addiction are two different things. Just because he felt guilty that he wanted to seek out sexual pleasure by his own fetishism and his own sexism and his own whatever prejudices does not necessarily make him a sex addict. It makes him a religious misogynist who is overwhelmed by his guilt because he's been fed lies by his church. Or he has interpreted messages from his church that were lies about sex in the story. So this whole everybody accepting sex addiction as a thing, honestly, gives sex addicts a bad name. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just going to put it because he felt guilty about sex. He Mm -hmm. felt guilty that he was so ashamed to ask or actually try to have sex with people he could build relationship with, that he sought it out at places that he chose to go to and said he had a sexual fetishism for, does not Mm -hmm. make him a sex addict. It makes him guilty because he feels sex is a bad thing. Right. So I I hate that. I hate every bit of that. That whole conversation makes me so angry. So that narrative needs to be taken out in -hmm. general. Unless he is actually by a professional diagnosed with sexual addiction, let's go ahead and say this is complete bull Mm -hmm. and this is all about him feeling guilty because he is overly religious in a religion that teaches 
misogynistic, sexist ideas in the story. Yeah. And the fact that there's so many who are, for the lack of better words, caping for this idea is really disturbing. Mm-hmm. So I'm very angry about that, all in general. And the fact that religious people, yes, <sighs> instead of taking any type of responsibility, they just shunned him and said, I don't want anything to do with him. That tells me a lot about that church. The lack of responsibility that they're willing to take tells me a lot about that church. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to put that out there. And when it comes down to the whole conversation about these women being immigrants or coming into this country, about how this narrative even began, I mean, the history of anti-Asian discrimination is wide and long. And we know this. It started way, way before, whether it's blaming China for syphilis and saying that it was an Asian disease or the Page Act of 1875 saying that Chinese women can't come in here because they're all prostitutes, essentially. All of these things are the basis and the foundation of how the community sees Asian women, period. The entirety of my childhood, I've been sexualized. The entirety of my adolescence, I was sexualized. My workplace, my school experiences, it all has some type of sexualization to it. Now, that is the bigger conversation. We've had this conversation many a times about how marginalized women, Latino, Black, Asian, all of us have been put down into sex objects period, and sexualized at a young age. And instead of just allowing women to be women, they're being told, if you do this, you're tempting men, so therefore it is your fault. And this is where this narrative came from. This whole idea of him being addicted to sex and Asian women deserve to die, essentially. Whether or not you say it, if you're encouraging this narrative, you're saying it. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of this whole level of having to rethink myself and also having to pull myself of the fact that I've allowed this to happen in my life because I'm scared to be seen. And if I object to this conversation, then I'm being difficult, Mm -hmm. for the lack of better terms. And within that, it's the whole colorism within marginalized communities. I'm going on and on and on, and I know. But there's so many things in this conversation that you have to face. It's not one note. It's not just anti-Asian hate. That is a big thing. But you have to look at the bigger scheme. And colorism within marginalized communities exists. And I know we've talked about it before, but it exists in the Asian community as well. And Yeah, someone pointed out how most of the people who are being spoken to or having the platform are light-skinned Asian women. That's problematic. That is completely problematic. And we need to be changing this, but no one is willing to do so. Because right now, we have to talk about the bigger picture, but we can't really talk about that bigger picture without looking at the smaller pictures. And it's problematic to me. And I don't understand how to change that. Because again, I don't fully feel like I can identify as Asian. There was one specific tweet that said, oh, those who uh, pretended not to be Asian, welcome, (laughs) finally, to our community. As in, like, signifying the only reason we're claiming to be Asian now is because something bad has happened, something tragic has happened. That cut me. I know Mm -hmm. it wasn't directed at me, (laughs) but that cut me. Because in many of these conversations, the bigger conversation is I felt like I never had a choice and therefore there's a reason I still struggle with that identity. Mm-hmm. And I'm still petrified in going to Korean communities because I'm afraid they're going to see me for what I am, which is whitewashed. Mm-hmm. Hell, other conversation. <laughs> and then of course, we can't escape the anti-blackness conversation within the Asian community as well as 
a lot of white people really like throwing that bull and saying, well, black people are the ones that did these things, which there's so many great TikToks, there's so many great people who are talking and calling this out and talking about the fact that, yeah, bad people exist in every community. We know this, we acknowledge this. But anti-blackness is a thing within the Asian community. And what it comes down to is that both of these work for the betterment of white supremacy. Both of this works for the betterment of the patriarchy. Like, we have to break that down first. But I absolutely believe that if the anti-Asian hate movement is overtaking the Black Lives Matter movement or any of that, then we're doing it wrong. Then it's being done wrong. And it is going to hurt more than help any of the causes at all period, point blank. So if there's, as one tweet says, if there's anti-Blackness in your anti-Asian movement, I don't want any part of it. Amen. Yeah. End of that. And this kind of brings out to, I haven't really said much. I haven't really posted much on social media. I've posted some on my Twitter. Again, part of this is because of my identity. Part of this is because I don't want to overtake the Black Lives Matter movement. Because again, we have things like Breonna Taylor, who is not getting justice. We see that this dude... I don't even talk about him. He got arrested immediately. Yeah, he's alive. He's fine. He's safe. And he's coddled in his cell. Wonderful. And everybody's praying over him, I'm sure, because of his sins of sex. Whatever. In Atlanta. And people are talking about what's going to happen. But there is going to be justice. Is it the right justice? I don't know. <laughs> we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Should it be a hate crime? I think so. It's yeah. obviously. Whether it's towards women, whether it's towards Asians, it's a hate crime. If it's hate against himself, so sure. Let's put that in there too. Why not? <laughs> but... What we talk about with the Black Lives Matter movement is the mere fact that the Black community has not gotten justice, period. We're watching the case with George Floyd as the officer is being persecuted and everybody is holding their breath. Because who knows? And we also know in that case, there was an Asian officer who just sat by and watched. We've seen that. We've seen that. And there's this conversation of, we need to do more. And again... I am grieving. I'm grieving for these people. I'm grieving for my own culture. I'm grieving for my lack of identity. I'm grieving because the people that I'm supposed to be closest to can't understand why I'm grieving. But I also don't want to ever overshadow the injustices that is happening. And what I see with cases like Breonna Taylor, what I see with Ahmed Aubrey, is that they don't get the justice that they deserve because they can't... It, it took multiple faceted petitions and media and hashtags for that even to come into light as where this which is still tragic and again I'm hurting was able to be caught within that day and he's in jail is he being coddled? Yes is he part of the system and part of the problem with the system? Yes but that's also why I, I have a hard time and not focusing on things that is personal to me too I also don't want to be selfish in that route, I guess, if that makes all sense. But there are so many things that I know we need to talk about. And I I absolutely am watching. And the fact that Asian hate has been persistent and very, very prevalent in the last year, almost, what, a day after the shootings, two older Asian people were attacked in California. Mm -hmm. And it's absurd. I can't understand. I can't understand what pushes people to that point of why you really think you have the right to hurt someone, physically attack someone because you are fed information, even if it's true, why you would do that. Mm-hmm. Why you think you have that right to take lies and to blame a whole culture 
because you're dumb enough to feed into those lies because you need to blame somebody. But, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm done. Okay. Yeah, and thank you so much, Samantha, for being vulnerable and, and opening up about this because, you know, we're listeners, we're really good friends. Like, we legitimately <laughs> are. And I've seen you struggle with this for as long as I've known you. I've seen it. And it is very complicated. And, and like everything you touched on in here is a piece of it. and You can't ignore it. And that those pieces often get lost. Or the mm-hmm. fact that it's complicated often gets lost. So yeah, just thank you for, for being open with us. I know it's not easy thing to do. Thank you for listening as I yes. cry. <laughs> cry on mic. yes people love a good crying sound on mic trust me if there's one thing I know (laughs) they love the sound effects that we do they love like snot sounds snot sounds (laughs) sniveling snot sounds yes and listeners we hope that you all are okay because I know it sounds really perhaps trite but we do honestly we do care about you all and we we appreciate you all so much so We hope that you all are okay and you can always reach out to us if you would like. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartradio.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I've Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you, Christina. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This podcast is brought to you by Kim Crawford Wines. Kim Crawford invites you to savor amazing with a chilled glass of New Zealand's finest. Named in the Wine Spectator Top 100 list four times, every sip of Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc is filled with tropical fruit flavors like passion fruit and citrus to help you experience golden hour how you see fit. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more and find Kim Crawford Wine near you. Savor amazing. For those 21 and over, please savor responsibly. Constellation Imports, Rutherford, California. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.